0: So the first reading is taken from Nehemiah, and I'll be reading from page 495. It's Nehemiah chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 28. So page 495 um, at the bottom of that page. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any, on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the, fir- of the fruit, of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of our tithes to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain new wine and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God.
1: And the second reading can be found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. So on page 1010 in your Pew Bibles, Are they pews? <laughs> 1010. Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written these people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me they worship me in vain their teachings are but rules taught by men you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men and he said to them you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, "'Honor your father and your mother,' and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, "'Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as korban—that that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother.' Thus you nullify the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is the word of the Lord. be to God.
2: Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity and by grace we'll stand on your promises, and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Please sit down. Would you turn to page 1010 in the Gospels it's the Mark chapter 7 as you do that I'm just reminded to say that next Sunday because it's the first Sunday after the light party is a family service it's a different service uh, and it's designed particularly to help people who we may have contacted through the families the light party to come to St Michael's so next Sunday is one of our occasional family services Well, my goodness me, what did you make of Mark chapter 7? They do things differently then, didn't they? Uh, How relevant, how can it be relevant to us here in London in the 21st century? But it expresses a contemporary English attitude to God, which is, if I do good things for God, he is obliged to do good things for me. I may say that it may be from other countries as well, It is particularly English. And the scene opens with a delegation of religious leaders from Jerusalem on a fact-finding investigation of Jesus' activities. There had, in fact, been an earlier investigation, look back, if you wish, to chapter 2, verse 16, so this, in fact, is a second visit. And it wasn't exactly a friendly visit, for they immediately identified a problem caused by Jesus' disciples' behavior. We're going to have to do a little digging if we're to understand the force, and this is my first point, of the accusation. The accusation. It's in verse 5, the disciples were accused of eating with unwashed hands. And this was not a matter of hygiene, but of being ceremonially unclean and therefore unfit to serve God or even to worship him. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law had developed from the commandments and the first five books of the Old Testament a whole complex web of rules and regulations to define how they applied in all life's situations and actions. It was an oral tradition and described in verse 3 as the tradition of the elders. Now these were not synagogue officials, but great legal experts of the 4th and 5th century B.C., who attracted followers who sought to apply their rulings. The schools of Hillel and Shammai were particularly respected. One of the key things was the washing of hands before approaching God. Before every meal and in between courses, hands had to be washed in a strictly regulated way. That's why, if you remember the story of the wedding at Cana, they had these great washpots. It wasn't because of thirst it was for the ceremonial washing of hands. Failure to do so ensured that you were unacceptable before God because you were ritually unclean. And Mark gives some illustrations of the implications. In verse 4, going to shop in Sainsbury's meant you could come into contact in the marketplace with Gentiles or Jews who didn't observe the ceremonial law, so becoming unclean hence the need on returning home to go through the ritual of washing before eating. And then there were the very elaborate details, in fact, 12 treatises on the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, again mentioned in verse 4. For example, if a pitcher was made of pottery, it could only be unclean on the inside, but if it was unclean, it had to be broken and so unusable. A plate without a rim... Couldn't become unclean, but a plate with a rim could. You see the complexity. Now, whatever we think about these, the Pharisees and teachers were very serious in their desire to please God by observing these rules and regulations. For in their mind, to ignore them was to sin. And what mattered was carrying out to the letter the oral tradition, rules, and regulations doing things for God. Does that not ring a bell with us? Doing things for God. And Jesus and his disciples couldn't be good people because they failed to live by all these regulations. But can't we fall into the same trap? Even valuable and very important things can become dangerous if we believe they entitle us to God's favor. That in observing things like coming to church regularly, regular Bible reading and prayer, even sacrificial giving to God's work, earn us God's attention, God's benevolence. This attitude is very deep-rooted and I often recognize it. If I'm wearing my clerical collar and meeting people, uh, some will immediately speak of uh, having been a choir boy 30 years ago, having an uncle who was a church warden, or an aunt who left a very large sum of money to her local church. Now, I don't think it's just because they're trying desperately to find something religious to talk to a vicar about. I think there's also an element of saying that all these things done for God deserve God's approval and mine, and a blessing on the individuals and even to the extended family. Here's my second point. Jesus' response. Jesus' response. Jesus declares that God is not in the slightest bit interested in all this outward show of piety. And he makes the point rather forcefully by quoting in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah 29:13 where Isaiah denounced the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus quotes Isaiah to highlight the danger of honoring God just with our lips, whilst our hearts are far away from him. Indeed, the teachers of the law and Pharisees are accused harshly of being hypocrites. They were behaving merely like actors in a play performing a part There was no sincerity in their actions, and their outward performance entirely ignored their inner attitude to God. Verse 6, their hearts are far from me. So it was possible to be full of those acts of the sinful nature so graphically described by Paul in Galatians 5, the very opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. He lists a number hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, and selfish ambition, just to mention a few and not to depress us. But according to the religious leaders, none of that mattered, provided you observe the correct laws about cleanness and uncleanness. The truth, though, is that if we harbor all those enemies of the Spirit, we too become hypocrites. For all our doing for God cannot cancel the state of our heart towards God. So the question becomes very relevant, very personal to us too. What is the state of your heart towards God? What is the state of my heart towards God? For we will always prefer standards and rules and will elevate outward performance over our inner state, because that way we can avoid the challenge of seeking to obey and depend on God Himself rather than the rules and regulations. Here's my third point the danger to avoid. The danger to avoid. Again, we have to do some more thinking fully to understand the issue which Jesus was highlighting from verse 9 and it was a very serious one. Nothing less than avoiding obeying the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. The system of Corban originally had some merit. You would set apart money or property from ordinary use and it was dedicated to God for his purposes. However, it was being used as an excuse to avoid helping parents and so breaking the commandment the teachers of the law insisted that Korban trumped the commandment, in effect disobeying what God had declared to be essential. So an irresponsible Jewish son could formally dedicate his earnings to God, especially to the temple, that would otherwise have gone to support the needs of his parents. As the NIV Study Bible footnote states, the Korban formula was simply a means of circumventing The clear responsibility of children towards their parents as prescribed by law. The crux of the matter is in verses 8 and 13. They have let go the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men, the absolute opposite of what they should have been doing. For God's commands are binding but the religious teachers' traditions have no similar authority. And the dangerous result is that the word of God is nullified and made ineffective, verse 13. Now, the teachers of the law use an argument justifying their view by quoting from Numbers 30 on oaths. But by insisting on the letter of the law, they entirely missed the meaning of the spirit of the law as a whole. And again, the NIV Study Bible sums it up succinctly. God never intended obedience to one command to nullify another. Now, William Barclay in his commentary also made another interesting point. He detects Jesus making a second implicit accusation. The teachers of the law had made guidance from God dependent... On listening to their clever arguments and ingenious interpretations rather than listening to and obeying God. He wrote, Cleverness, cleverness can never be the basis of true religion. True religion comes from listening to and accepting the voice of God. Now, don't mishear me, that doesn't mean we never seek to benefit from biblical scholarship, from those who have given their lives to academic study often for our benefit. But one of the characteristics of Scripture is its clarity. That is that anyone, whatever education they had, should be able to grasp the essentials of the Gospel and what God requires. The answer, therefore, to the question, can only Bible scholars understand the Bible rightly, must be no. And it was this belief that drove William Tyndale to translate the Bible into English. For this, he was martyred in 1536. When attacked by an opponent, he replied, If God spare my life, before very long, I shall cause a ploughboy to know the Scriptures better than you do. My fourth point. So, what is the impact of these verses for us today? What, as a friend of mine used to say, is the Monday morning test. Aren't we also in danger of letting go the commands of God, in effect nullifying the word of God? I was speaking last week, as I mentioned, at a clergy conference in Ireland from the book of Nehemiah, and there were three areas of life that they promised to uphold before God in order to reflect their relationship with God, lives pleasing to him. Now, please don't mishear me. We are not saying that outward observance in this, these areas entitles us to God's blessing. But the state of our hearts and relationship of God with God would be seen, particularly, in the three areas mentioned in our first reading from Nehemiah. If you want to turn to it, it's on page 495, 496. And the three areas were marriage, Sabbath observance, and money. Now, I'm not going to preach a second sermon here on Nehemiah, but simply reflect how we can practice holiness of living, holiness of living in these areas, and avoid the danger of nullifying the word of God. Marriage. We say in the marriage service that we should uphold and honor marriage, for it enriches society and strengthens community. I said it at Duncan and Allison's wedding, yes, it was in intensive care in the hospital, but I use those words. But the institution of marriage, of course, has been severely undermined over the years. For example, we live in a, in a culture and society that normalizes adultery and fails to take into account the damage and pain caused. The commandment, do not commit adultery, is not an option, but a command. For it is in obeying it that human beings flourish. By letting go this command, great damage has been caused. So how can those of us who are married strengthen our marriages? And for all of us, single or married, how can we uphold and honor marriage? I want to focus more, however, on the other two areas, Sabbath observance and money. The Keep Sunday special campaign failed under the relentless pressure of vested interests, especially shops. A few people have said to me that they regret a quieter, calmer day in London. And interestingly, many have become aware of the need for a work-life balance. In our workaholic business world, there is some recognition that we cannot work long-term, 24-7. We need a Sabbath rest. I think the women's brunch is absolutely brilliant. It's a word for the moment. It's such a clever title, I can't remember it, but I thought, what a brilliant title. Making Rest Realistic in a Hurry-Up World. world. I was a bit shocked when one of the clergy at our conference in Ireland, I admitted I thought rather unwisely in front of their bishop, said that they never took a day off as they were too busy. I pointed out later in my talk that the clergy cannot ignore the commandment to rest one day in seven, although it probably won't be Sundays. It's a commandment. And of course, for the believer, the space on Sunday was designed for us to worship God. Have we become casual in obeying this command, infected by our cultural casualness? For you see, Sunday worship enables us to get our perspectives clear that what is unseen is eternal, and what is seen is temporary. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. I've told the story before I think it it bears repeating of the American diplomat working in Damascus at an earlier time of tension between Syria and the United States. My friend was a chaplain there and expressed surprise knowing that there was a crisis that the diplomat was attending the Sunday service. The diplomat replied Sunday worship is a non-negotiable. Sunday worship is a non-negotiable. Is it so for you? And finally, money. The God most worshipped today I'm often struck by the offertory prayer in the communion service that we have here. It's based on 2 Chronicles, chapter 29, and verse 14. Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. I'm sometimes tempted to say, do you believe that? Do we really believe it? If we do, then we realize the money we have has been lent to us. We are to be wise stewards of what God has given us. A friend of mine rather naughtily knew of somebody who just died, and somebody said, how much did he leave? How much did he leave? He said, everything. (laughs) We're approaching the Day of Commitment uh, on November the 20th when we invite regular members of St. Michael's prayerfully to review their committed giving to the ministry of this church for 2017. We ask you to pledge it. The government does not pay for St. Michael's. We do. We do. And this pledge, of course, is very important. It means that the Treasurer can sleep at night and the Finance Secretary not be worried, and we can budget for the coming year. It's housekeeping. Did you notice, incidentally, which I hadn't, Nehemiah, how very complex it was to make sure that the work of God was carried out? They didn't run a deficit budget. It's also a time of year when I remind us all of the one moment in Scripture when God invites us to test him, because testing God is usually forbidden, but not in Malachi 3. God, interesting again, accuses his people of robbing him of their tithes and offerings, and that was a sign of the state of their relationship with God and that they would turned away from him and where they were, what the state of their attitude to God was. And he challenges them to be faithful in their giving, As an indication of their renewed heart relationship to Him. Bring the whole tithe, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. In my other church in the north, uh, this was a big issue. Such a big issue, I had to invite a Pentecostal minister to come and teach us about tithes and offerings, and he brought with him, or I can't remember if he brought with him, I think he brought with him a man who was, he taught about him, he was on benefits. And the man had come to a new faith in Jesus Christ, and he started tithing his benefit. And it was one of those extraordinary stories, miraculously, the inland revenue gave him a, a, a credit out of the blue. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, will you take time prayerfully to consider all your giving to St. Michael's, but also to other Christian agencies? If we don't support them, who will? In conclusion, the challenge of Mark 7, dressed up perhaps in rather obscure clothes, is still absolutely relevant. Are we in danger of letting our culture, our human traditions, nullify the word of God? Do we allow them to hold us back from obeying God? Are we afraid to be different, for example, in our attitude to marriage, to Sunday worship, and to money? For Christians are called to be different. We are called to be salt and light. And the world needs us to be so. For only then will it see what it means to take the word of God seriously as we live it day by day. Let us pray. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Heavenly Father, we ask you for your forgiveness where what is plain and straightforward and clear from your word we revise, we soften, we avoid. And we ask that you would help us to live in a loving, obedient relationship to you because you love us. And that you would examine the state of our hearts towards you. And we may not fall into that desperate, desperate trap of just doing things for you, but with our hearts far from you.